Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6 this morning. This morning's title is that we have a glorious ministry. We have a glorious ministry. Paul here continues to write about his ministry that was being attacked by his enemies in Corinth and other places. And there were a lot of reasons for Paul to be discouraged in what was going on. But Paul was not a quitter. He didn't quit. And here we have another side of God's comfort. In chapter 1, we saw God's comfort for life's plans. Many times, life's plans are not our plans. And we can go through very difficult times. But God's comfort comes and comforts us during those times. In chapter 2, we saw God's comfort in restoring sinning saints. Those who get caught up in sin and maybe stay away from the presence of God. But then God in His love restores sinners. Like the incestuous man in first chapter uh, chapter uh, one verse, uh, I'm sorry, in the fifth, uh, yeah, chapter one of the uh, um, sinning saint. And so in chapter three, God shows us comfort in the ministry of Christ. There is a comfort that we have in the ministry of Christ. Because many times ministry can become very difficult. Now we're going to see God's comfort in the ministry of suffering for Christ. Because a part of the ministry is suffering for Christ as he suffered. Here Paul goes on to tell us how the Holy Spirit challenges us. First, he gave us or he gives us a new ministry. Look at verse 1 in chapter 4. Therefore, since we have this ministry... As we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. The ministry here is the ministry of the new covenant that Paul mentioned in chapter 3, verse 6. It was a merciful covenant. It was one that wasn't of the law, but of the Spirit. A ministry a lot more wonderful than the legalistic ministry Paul's critics wanted to force on the Corinthians. Paul wasn't worried about it. Exhaustion nor fear discouraged Paul. Paul praised the mercy of God that was at the heart of the new covenant. So, Paul knew what he possessed in Christ. And instead of complaining about what he didn't have, which many times as Christians, that's what we focus on. We complain about what we don't have or what we don't know rather than rejoice in what we do have and what we do know. Because we have everything that we need and we know all that we need to know based on God's word. So like Paul, instead of him complaining about what he didn't have, he rejoiced in what he did have and you and I can do the same thing. A discouraged Methodist preacher wrote to the great Scottish preacher, Alexander White, for counsel. He said, should I leave the ministry? Alexander White said, never think of giving up preaching. The angels around the throne envy your great work. 
That's the kind of reply Paul would have written. The kind of reply that all of us need to hear and to think about whenever we feel like the work that we do for Christ is in vain. It was mercy that rescued Israel from Egypt, not the law. When God called Moses to be Israel's deliverer, God said this, I have seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and I've heard their cry. I know their sorrow, so I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them, Exodus 3, 7 through 9. We see this great mercy from start to finish that took Israel out of Egypt and carried them across the deserts of Sinai and settled them in the promised land of Canaan. This you know, this, this, this mercy was sung all through Psalm 136. The phrase, His mercy endures forever, is repeated 26 times in Psalm 136, once in every verse. In God's mercy that endures forever. It's God's mercy that endures forever. We can be thankful for that because it's the foundation of our salvation. And I need His mercy every single day. It was mercy that held back God's judgment when Moses prayed for the Israelites. Remember, after they made the golden calf. God wanted to wipe them out and start all over again. But it was His mercy that spared them. It was His mercy that spared Nineveh, even though Jonah was upset over the fact. It was a mercy seat where God sat and was enthroned in Old Testament times. And it's on a mercy seat that God now is enthroned in grace with free access for all. In Hebrews, He says, hey, come boldly now. To the throne of grace. As for the law, it was to last only until the seed, which is Christ, should come to whom the promise was made. So then, Paul gloried in the ministry of mercy because he obtained mercy as we have all obtained mercy. Paul obtained mercy himself on the road to Damascus. And it would take more than the meanness of a handful of legalists to shut Paul up. Second, comes a new morality. First, in verse 1, we have the new, the new ministry. Secondly, comes a new morality. We have been called to forsake all crookedness in handling the things of the world and in handling the subjects of the word. Look at verse 2. Paul goes on to say, But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness or handling the word of God deceitfully, but by, man, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Because that's the way the world does things, in crookedness. He said we are to denounce and renounce, to do away with those, those things of crookedness in the world. That's the way the world lives. That's the way the world does things. That's the way the legalists at Corinth were, were working in Paul's day. That's the way the cults work today. The word dishonesty is used in the King James Version. Here it's translated shame. In Paul's opinion, the legalists shouldn't, uh, they should have been ashamed of themselves. The word for craftiness here suggests dishonest behavior. And it's the word that's used of the chief priests and the scribes when they set a trap for Jesus by asking him if they ought to pay tribute to Caesar. In Luke 20, it says that Jesus perceived their craftiness. Jesus saw right through their sly attempt to embrace him with the Jewish nationalists of the Roman authorities. Similarly, Paul saw through the hidden things of shame of the legalists. 
They were up to the same old tricks. The preachers of the new covenant have rejected these things. The word for renounced in verse 2 means we are to reject all shameful dishonesty like that which Paul's opponents evidently tried to use to sabotage his converts. We have been called on to reject all crookedness in handling the subjects of the word of God as well. In verse 2, Paul says, we're not to handle the word of God deceitfully. We don't try to trick anybody or distort the word of God. We tell them the truth before God and all who are honest know this. In contrast with the legalist, Paul says, we're not, we're not to tamper with the word of God. We aren't to mess with the word of God. We're not to change it to, to meet our fancy. We're not to change it to, to entice people to believe what I believe. We are to tell them the truth of the word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to do the convicting. Too many churches today, too many preachers today preach God's word to meet their desire, their need, their gain, their popularity. We're not to tamper with the word of God. There was no dishonest tampering, no dishonest manipulation of the scriptures with Paul in the ministry he had. The word for handling here, it means not just to, de- to deceive, but to falsify. Paul accuses the legalists of deliberately corrupting the text. And in contrast with those who manipulated the scriptures to promote their own evil goals, Paul affirms that his own ministry as having been absolutely transparent. He and other uh, apostles, they communed the gospel in truth. Paul's enemies depended on trickery to get followers. And, And there are churches that do that. They'll preach a, a, a false gospel, a comfortable gospel. They'll leave out the blood. They'll leave out the crucifixion. They'll leave out the, the, the cross. They'll leave out sin because we don't want to make people uncomfortable. Well, that's what the Bible does. It makes people uncomfortable. Why do you think they crucified Jesus? He made people uncomfortable. And they didn't like it. Therefore, they crucified him. But Paul's ministry was totally transparent. He didn't manipulate the Word of God. He didn't use trickery to gather followers. He wasn't into gathering followers. He was into gathering believers of Christ. We point people to Christ. That's our purpose. Paul relied on the plain, simple, and literal truth of the Word of God. Why? Because truth proves itself. Truth is truth. Even when it's rejected, it's still truth. And and again, when it's rejected and hated, it still witnesses the conscience as being true. You know the truth. You know the truth. You just deny it or you deceive it or or, or disbelieve it. But you know it. God gave us a conscience, and it knows the truth. The, the conscience is God's helper to the soul, and it was put there since Adam's fall to witness the truth of God. Truth is simple, and it's sincere, and, and, and you know, it, it, it's pure, and it's convincing. On the other hand, lies are tormenting. They destroy character, and sometimes... Uh, 
it's a, and, and many times it's effective. You know, it, it's effective, but it often needs more lies to keep them going. And in, and in the end, self-revealing lies. For example, after Peter told the first lie, you know, I didn't deny him. It led to a second. I didn't deny him. It led to a third one. And once Peter started a lie, he had to tell another and another. It's a lot harder to tell a lie than it is the truth. After Peter was through telling all of his lies, he was totally depressed. Luke 22, verse 16, 61 says, He, Peter, wept bitterly. By contrast, truth is simple, it's sincere, and it's upfront. But the legalists, they supported their false teaching with craftiness and deceitful handling of the Scriptures. The apostles just told the simple God-inspired truth, and that was it. That's all you have to do. You don't, you don't have to defend the Word of God. You don't have to defend the Word of God. You speak it, and then the Holy Spirit does the work. He convinces, convicts. Paul has been talking about the law and about the Lord in chapter 3. Here now he focuses on the lost and their relationship to the gospel. And he starts with the enemy of the gospel. So now in verse 3 he invites us to consider first the veil. Look at verse 3. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Paul has just said that he preached the simple truth of God. A truth that carried its own approval and its own conviction. But Paul's critics, they gave no basis for what they preached. They kept saying, though, that Paul's teaching wasn't clear. That, you know, earlier on we read that he didn't have the proper credentials. Paul counters now with the fact that the gospel was clear enough, and yet to some it remained unhidden. You see, the problem isn't in the Word of God. The problem was not in the nature of the gospel, but in the blindness of those that it was preached to. And Paul will mention surely that the God of this world blinds the minds of unbelievers. Some, some refuse to admit that. Others try to, to cope with it. But they're still blind. The great truth of the gospel meaning, uh, means nothing to them. They'd rather hear men's philosophies. They, 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 they appeal to the lies of Satan. They believe Satan's lies. You see, Satan is this world's real God. Plus, the common saying is so true that there are none so blind as those who will not see. Don't, don't bother me with the truth. I've already made up my mind. It's sad enough when an unsaved man wakes up to the fact that he's blind. That the gospel makes no sense to him at all. But it's a, it's a lot worse thing for him when he's blind and he doesn't know it. He hears the gospel and rejects it. He says there's nothing in it. Some have searched the Bible their whole lives and enjoyed its great truths and its unchanging principles and have enjoyed its possibilities and its eternal truths and its infinite riches. 
On the other hand, there are those who, to whom the Bible is a closed book. They can't make heads or tails of it. They're like the Ethiopian eunuch when Philip asked him if he could understand the scripture that he was reading. And he replied, how can I unless somebody guides me? Some people are teachable and open to the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Others just shrug off the Bible as a book full of myths. That's what you hear today. Uh, it's fables, it's nonsense, it's written by man. It doesn't, it doesn't deal with, the, with the, the society and the culture today. It sure does. They just don't like the way it deals with society and culture today. Again, they don't like truth. They don't want to hear the truth. And in their, and in their wisdom, so-called wisdom, they become fools. Paul says these people are lost. And the proof lies in the very fact that the gospel is hid, hid from them or hid to them. It's veiled. And people reject the gospel for all kinds of reasons. And some find a way to avoid it by believing in the theory of evolution because that takes God out of creation. Psychoanalysis. We're going to blame somebody else for your problems. Science, that's the big one. That's the big God today, science. We're going to believe in science. They think science has the answer for everything. And they think science is going to solve all the world's problems today. Rejecting the gospel for whatever reason just proves, according to the Holy Spirit, human depravity and how lost they are. Paul says, if our gospel is hid, it's hid to them that are lost, to those that are perishing. It was certainly hid to the legalists, the Gnostics, and the pagans of Paul's day. And now in verse 4, our attention is now directed to the adversary. Look at verse 4. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Here, Paul explains why so many lost people stay lost. Satan has them in his grip. He's described here as the God of this age. Satan's the creator of all false religion. Unsaved religious people either ignorantly or, or, or secretly or even openly worship Satan. There's a lot of power in false religions. There's a lot of zeal in false religions. There's a lot of fanaticism in false religions. It's produced by evil spirits and a conviction that's founded on lying visions and false scriptures. Satan has blinded the minds of those that don't believe. Ever since our first parents, Adam and Eve, ate of the tree of knowledge, the man's mind has been susceptible to err and believe them. Believing those, those, those errors with unbelievable extremism. For example, Christian science, which this church used to be. This church was a Christian science church before we got it. It's a religion that's neither science or Christian. Founded by a woman named Mary, Mary Eddie Baker, who taught that pain and death weren't real. I wonder if anybody ever went and kicked her in the shins and, oh, it's not real. No, 
or what she thinks about the cemeteries out here or where she's, well, buried in one. But it's all a figment of the imagination. They weren't real. They were errors of human mind. And people actually believe that kind of stuff and that's why they're not here today in this church. Because they don't have the Spirit of God. They had a different Spirit. But it wasn't the Holy Spirit. And that's why they, they lost the church. The glory wasn't here. Christ wasn't here. The Word of God wasn't here. And yet they still hold on. People still hold on to foolish religion. And even of this deceived woman. How Satan must laugh at the gullibility of the unsaved mind of man to believe such things. It seems like people can be persuaded to believe anything. Satan's fertile mind finds a false religion for everyone. Because you see, if you don't believe the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's nothing else to believe but a lie. What did God say in His Word? Because they didn't believe in the truth, He was fed a strong delusion. They would believe the lie rather than the truth. And that's what's happening today. They hold on to foolish lies. Satan's fertile mind. I mean, it's, man, he's got something for everybody. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Hinduism, Buddhists, and the list goes on. People believe the most far-fetched things. Why? Because Satan blinds their minds. And he does it so that they don't understand this message about the glory of Christ. Christ is the exact likeness of God. So then the God of this world blinds the minds of unbelievers. By nature, man is a worshiping creature. He was originally made in the image and the likeness of God. His spirit was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But when sin came in, the Holy Spirit moved out, leaving man in a lost condition. And that man, because of that lost condition, tries to fill that empty void in his personality with something else because he's restless, he's incomplete, and his innermost being is longing for something. But he doesn't know what it is. That's why man jumps from one relationship to another, or one job to another, or one place to another, or different careers, and just keep on moving, looking for that, that one thing that they, they know will make them happy, or they think will make them happy. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has, has planted eternity in men's hearts and minds. That's why nothing fulfills that, 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 that void that's an eternal void, because there's only one that's eternal. Everything else is temporary, and that's why they move on from one thing to another, one experience to another, one person, whatever it might be. They keep moving on from one thing to another because only God is eternal. Anything else they try to fill that eternal void with, it's temporary. God has planted eternity in men's hearts and minds. It's, it's, it's a divinely implanted sense of a purpose working through the ages which nothing under the sun but God can alone satisfy. We have an implanted sense of purpose that only God can satisfy. 
Nothing else, no one else. The God of this world provides man with plenty of faulty options. With one man, it might be business. Hey, that might be the thing. Or pleasure. Or the pursuit of of a scholarship. Another one hopes to find fulfillment in marriage or family life or whatever. You know, and again, it just goes on one thing after another. another. Another person tries politics because they love power. Millions of people try to fill the empty void with some kind of religion. The only answer to man being lost is Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. He's both God and man. In Jesus, the divine ideal was restored. He lived on earth as man, inhabited by God. God manifest in the flesh. He was a man as God intended him to be. He was God overall, blessed forevermore. And his death on the cross brought forth the precious blood that cleanses us from all sin. It cleanses the believing heart from the guilty stains of sin. And then when a person is cleansed, then the Holy Spirit can come into that person. And that person then is born again. As Jesus said, you must be born again. And Satan does everything in his power to blind men's minds to these things. Now in the first part of verse 5, Paul now turns from the enemy of the gospel to the messengers of the gospel. And he mentions the sovereignty of the master. Look at the first part of verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. Notice. Here's whom we preach. Jesus. It's not a creed that saves. It's Jesus who saves. It's not precepts or principles. It's a person. Plus, the person preached, Christ is Lord. He's master. He's the all-important name. He's the name of the power. He's the name that Satan hates and fears. He trembles at that name. Whenever Satan is introduced into the story, we always find Jesus too. The human race has three enemies that we know of. The world, the flesh, and the devil that the Bible mentions. And as you read the scriptures, you soon learn that God and Satan are opposed to each other. Paul introduces Satan as the God of this world to those that don't believe. And then he introduces Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus Christ is the one who removes darkness, as Paul will tell us. The devil might be clever. Well, he is clever. And he's powerful. And he's diligent. He never sleeps. But he's no match for the Lord Jesus Christ, and he knows it. Satan is not God's equal. He doesn't even come close, so he's not God's equal. But the devil is clever, he's powerful, and he's diligent. And that's why he tries so hard to keep people blinded to the truth. Because he is no match for Christ. He tries to keep people from the Word of God so that they can't learn the Word of God or don't learn the Word of God, don't understand their resources they have to to have victory over the trials and tribulations as a Christian. And then Paul mentions the service of the messenger in the second part of verse 5. He says, 
Let's go to verse 5 again. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. So there's the one that we preach about. And ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. The first part of verse 5 says that Jesus is Lord. The second part, Paul says, I'm a servant. I'm a servant of the Lord. A bondservant, he says. The bondservant. The word bondservant is used 30 times in Paul's letter. Now, a bondservant was different than, uh, the, than many of the servants. It was the lowest of the low to be a, to, to be a bondservant. A bondservant had no rights. He had no possessions. He had nothing. He had no voice. He was at the beck and call of his master. And that's what Paul says, hey, I have nothing, I own nothing, I want nothing. I'm at the beck and call of my master, Jesus Christ. A bond slave doesn't work for himself. He's at the beck and call of another. Paul hadn't come to Corinth to make a name for himself. He came to Corinth to minister to others, to win people to Christ and to build them up in the most holy faith. And you know who he did it for? Jesus Christ which was more than enough motive and and driving force to do what he was doing. Later on, Paul's going to tell us what Jesus did for our sake. When we think of what Jesus did for our sake, it's no wonder that we should be willing to do something for his sake. And then Paul speaks next about the entry of the gospel. So Satan blinds people, but God has a way to deal with that. God can break through the deepest, darkest spirits in man. And when Christ's light shines in, darkness has to flee. There's nothing else darkness can do. Paul reminds us of the command of the God who commands. Notice in verse 6. For it is the God, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. Here God takes us back to the beginning when darkness covered the earth. It says that God spoke and that was all He needed to do. He said, light be and light was. You see, when God speaks, it's done. The light came and darkness left. It's the same spiritually. And you know, we have a great reminder if if you'll think of this. When you go into a room that's dark, what do you do? You flick on the light switch. Where's the dark go? It's gone. There's no communion between light and darkness. The light overpowers the dark. When you hit that light switch, dark's got to go. It's the same thing, spiritually speaking. God brings the light. When God brings the light, the darkness goes. It has to go. It, It can't do anything else. Then Paul goes on to speak about the rest of the verse in the second part of verse 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown, notice, in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the rest of the verse now is about the grace that comes to us through God. Paul tells us the total defeat of Satan in the human heart. Paul says he has shined in our hearts. That's the key to it all. Satan goes after the mind. God goes after the heart. Satan blinds the minds of men with subtle deceptive arguments, with satanic convincing arguments, with lies that sound like truth, where truth and error are carefully blended together. 
That's why, Jesus, why God said in Genesis 3.1, he, he was the most cunning beast he created. It's almost impossible to argue and reason a person into becoming a Christian. And if you do, it's just, you could, if, if, he, if, he, if he can be reasoned and argued into being a Christian, he can also be reasoned and argued not to be a Christian. See, it must be the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You see, a belief is something you hold. Conviction, uh, 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 conviction is something that holds you. And we need to understand that. And only God can bring conviction to a heart. Sometimes Satan is so deeply rooted into an unsaved person's mind. Even though, even though the logic of the gospel is flawless and absolute, Satan can be deeply rooted, like I said, in an unsaved person's mind. In any case, God has a better way. God goes after the heart. John 16, 8-11 says, He convicts of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment to come. God shines the light of the gospel into the deepest places of the heart, only places that he can reach. When the conscience is awakened, guess what? You have a hungry heart that responds. Where reason still spits out its own worn-out ideas and opinions. Paul wasn't one to Christ because somebody proved Christ to him. He wasn't one to Christ because somebody proved to him that he was wrong in what he believed, but by a sudden blazing revelation on the road to Damascus. Paul may have debated Christianity with some converts, possibly with a good apologist like Stephen. And it's generally thought that Saul, as he was called before in those days, was one of the members of the Cilician synagogue that Luke mentions in connection with Stephen. But the scales fell from Paul's eyes only after meeting Jesus Christ face to face. Paul's hard heart was opened when he met the Lord Jesus. And man, that's what's happened to many of us here, if not all. Lord willing all. That when we met Jesus, man, that hard heart was opened. We, he, he, you know, he gave us that light that removed that darkness. The scales fell from our eyes as it fell from Paul's eyes when he met Jesus face to face. Paul's heart was, was opened when the Lord met him personally on that road to Damascus. And now Paul moves on to the Greeks. God has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge, he says. Paul says knowledge was the great passion of the Greeks. They, they loved knowledge. And the Greeks seemed to know about everything except the thing that was most important, God. When it came to their knowledge of God, they were fools. They filled Mount Olympus with gods made in the image and fallen nature of man. In the Lord Jesus Christ, perfect humanity was restored. Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. He's the image of the invisible God. The all-important knowledge the Greeks wanted to find and to learn and failed to find was found in Jesus Christ. The knowledge of God is found in Jesus. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Then Paul next turns to the Romans. 
God has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. The great passion of the Romans was glory. Rome was a, was a magnificent city. It was built on seven hills. And it had great highways and pomp and splendor. It had power and skills. And Paul knew all of this. Because remember, Paul was a Roman citizen himself. But he had seen the glory of God and he had to tell the Romans about it like we need to tell people about it. And then Paul turns last to the Christians. God has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The great passion of the Christian is to see his face. And one day we're going to. The face of Jesus for the believer will be the, for, will be the first foretaste of heaven. Can you imagine? Jacob was never the same after he met the angel of the Lord at the Jabbok. Jacob said in Genesis 32:20, I have seen God face to face. So Paul tells us here that Satan blinds men's minds. Paul tells us God shined directly into their hearts and God's light makes everything new. God makes everything new. And if people are looking for a new start in life, a clean slate, only God can do that. Through His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before You this morning to thank You for this chapter, Lord. We thank You for these verses. We thank You for Your Word, Lord. And Father, we thank You that we have Your Word, God. And it doesn't have to be defended. It has to be preached. And your spirit, God, brings the conviction to hearts. Lord, we pray this morning that we've all met Christ as our Lord and Savior. But as we're praying and just lifting our hearts to the Lord, I want to ask if there's anybody here that doesn't know Christ but through the message this morning, the Holy Spirit has spoken to their heart. And they recognize that they need to receive Christ. If God has spoken to you this morning, and you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, just put up your hand real quick and then put it back down. Anybody at all? Jesus wants to give you eternal life. It's just a prayer away. Anybody at all? Father, we thank you. Father, then that all are believers. But if not, Lord, again, may you just bring that conviction. And may they dwell upon your word this morning, God. And recognize the need for Christ, Lord. To be delivered from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the offering that we will receive today, Lord. We thank you for watching over us. We thank you for taking care of us, God. You're so generous and you're so faithful, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.